Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello and welcome. It's Dr. Haid Al-Hakim here, and it's the Surgical Spirit Podcast, and I have um, a great guest today, um, Dr. Sami Tamimi. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to, to have, for us to have a chat. Absolutely. I think, you know, conversations are really important, and, and really for me... I find conversations um, a great godsend, really, because it sort of allows us to get out of our own kind of minds and sort of framework and sort of step into other people's uh, lives and, and, and sort of frameworks. Um, did conversation, yeah. did, I mean, did you enjoy conversations when you were younger or was conversations sort of uh, a big part in your, in your upbringing? Well, um, just as you were saying that, I was thinking actually over the years, I think I've learned a lot more from the conversations I've had with people than I've had from, than I've learned from the various books that I've read, courses that I've been on. And, and I guess those conversations span a range of people from conversations with other professionals around the things that I'm interested in, uh, with my friends who were doctors in other branches of um, medicine, um, but also the conversations from growing up. W one, of the, one of the things um, that I think, I, I, I think looking back at uh, some of the influences that were involved in our growing up helps us understand quite a lot. Nothing's total, but it helps us understand quite a lot about what we became interested in or what we might have struggled with. One of the things about, because um, uh, uh, like you, I come from Iraq, but I think I was uh, a bit older when um, we left under difficult circumstances with the deteriorating political situation. So I was 14 when I left Iraq. Um, <clears throat> but one of the formative things I think that was around was that um, um, my father and um, my my mother's English and my father's Iraqi and my mum did a great job of becoming part of the extended family and um, you know she became one of the um, matriarchs if you can think of it in in that way in the extended family um, but we th there was lots of different characters so I think because we were mixing. Uh, from a very young age with extended family, with cousins, with um, uh, uncles and aunts. And um, you you kind of begun to learn uh, a little bit about the variety and, and, and um, of the ways people act and interact. So you kind of develop that intuitive sense of how to be different with different people because they react in different ways. And, and I often think about that, thinking about 
my own children growing up in this country and what a much more limited opportunities there were for that sort of diverse socialization so that's one thing I think about and the other thing I think about is um, we were a bit of an unusual family because um, even though there was a lot of very religious people in my family so in my uncle's family who who we were closest to uh, my extended family they were very religious a lot of my cousins were very religious Um, but my father had turned his back on all of that and was a sort of committed Marxist. And one of his brothers was sort of writing also for the Communist Party paper in Iraq, which was legal at at the time. Uh, And for him, religion was uh, something that um, uh, acted as a a kind of sedative to the population and stopped them from thinking and and, um, stopped them from challenging the status quo and so um so i i in my adolescence i do remember a strange to and fro where i was um talking to my cousins who were very deeply devoutly religious and listening to them and then going back to my um father and arguing how can you say that god doesn't exist when this this and this and this and then listening to my father and then going back to my cousins and saying, well, how can you say God exists and is all around us because of this, this and this? Mm-hmm. And, and it was an interesting schooling in a way in um, seeing how sometimes quite contrary frameworks for understanding the world around us can make complete sense to different people, but they can't both be true. And so I think I've had this, um, uh, as I went through my um, professional training as a psychiatrist, I kept getting very attracted to different models of understanding the mind. But it wasn't long before I started seeing the holes Mm. and started asking questions. And and, um, so I I think it sensitized me to being very skeptical and suspicious of truth claims. Yeah, 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 and 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 where was your mother sort of in all this kind of toing and froing and and um, uh, I mean you were kind of essentially not really conflict resolution, but you were you were trying to bring people together maybe by going between the camps. Um, I, I mean that's quite a generous interpretation. I, I quite like that. <laughs> I'm a generous guy. You'll you'll find out very quickly. Um, I, I think at the time I was, you know, it's that time in life where you're trying to, you're, you're struggling to make, you're starting to ask these bigger, more abstract questions. Um, uh, I mean, I was somebody who was maybe thinking about things from quite a young age. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was a rebel when I grew up. I was a rebel because okay. I grew up in a very religious um, uh, yeah. environment, and yet I was exposed to the Western world because I came here at the age of four. Yeah. So I was always pointing at the holes in all the yeah. arguments. I never committed to any <laughs> uh, sort of position myself because I because I found that I wasn't convinced by anything really, mm. uh, but I understood what the arguments were. But then there were so many holes, and when you point mm. the holes. They don't like you too much. Um, you know, being a critical person, 
um, you know, is, is not a great place to be in. Um, I guess when I was younger, it was, it was more difficult to do, but because you were, you know, your body was smaller, they can abuse you much more sort of uh, easier. But as I grew up, you know, uh, you tend to defend yourself a bit better. So my power kind of battery got bigger and I was able to defend myself. Um, but I was never really committed to anything. Um, yeah. And which is a bit lonely as well. Familiar. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Which is lonely as well, because you're kind of, you know, you're not part of any kind of tribe, really. Um, but then you go to that tribe because it's comfortable and you get all the nice cookies and all the nice sweets and so on. And, uh, but then you get uneasy there as well because, you know, that's not you. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting um, way of looking at it. And, and it kind of rings true, particularly for when I came to the UK as a 14-year-old. Because I think uh, up until then, that sense of belonging wasn't even a question. It's not even something that had mm. come into my mind. It mm. was just a given. Mm. Um, so uh, at those naive ages, I didn't feel um, insecure at questioning these things. I was just trying to figure stuff out and having lots of interesting conversations in the process. Um, when I came to the UK, um, and, and this may be another thing that sensitized me to um, how living your life involves kind of unwritten rules about how you're meant to conduct yourself according to, to, to your context. Um, and of course, you're not aware of it until you move from one context where the written, unwritten rules are very different to another one. So as a 14-year-old in Iraq, we'd already sort of approached the ages where the genders were separated, where in order to kind of um, uh, how best to put it, in, in order to be a man, you had to show uh, a comradeliness to your fellow um, uh, other men and not show interest in women and girls uh, that was that was for something uh, later um, uh, uh, you were there was a kind of cultural assumption that you would be respectful to your elders so the idea for example of speaking back to teachers was a bit of you know, completely foreign one, um, uh, and that you would be kind to the, the younger people. You know, these, these kind of unwritten rules that you, you, you're just living your life so you don't really know that they're unwritten rules until you, you're exposed to something different. So coming here as a 14-year-old and um, not showing interest in girls was the opposite of the way you, you showed yourself to be a man amongst uh, your adolescent peer group. And then, you know, the classrooms were so different. Yeah. People were talking out loud and answering back to teachers and teachers were being pally with, with the kids. And it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was very it was bizarre. Yeah. It was very disorientating. So that was, that was the time in my life where, uh, and, and then there's this kind of, ongoing low-grade racism that was there 
you know, um, you know, other kids asking me, how many camels does it take to buy your mother? And did you come here on a flying carpet? And, and uh, it, uh, sorry, you know, I laugh, it, but, but I it's know funny. It, is, <laughs> it, it is kind of, um, but at the time, you're, the way it makes you feel is it makes you feel like an outsider, like some sort of a figure of um, amusement, um, curiosity. And, and, and those were my kind of first experiences, really, of uh, not feeling that I have a place or, or, or I belong or I'm part of this. Yeah. And, and did, did you think about going back? Did you say, Dad, you know, you know, why the hell are we here? And did you rebel against that sort of decision? Well, it was a bit more complicated because I, I came to the UK with my um, older brother, and uh, he went to stay with relatives and I went to stay with my um, uh, grandmother mm. um, and the rest of the family. My parents and my younger brother were um, remained in Iraq and my parents had basically arranged for us to more or less um, escape before because uh, the situation with Iran was deteriorating and the Iraq-Iran war was on the horizon. So, um, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess that was another kind of quite lonely thing because I, I was shipped out of my family, extended family yes. and, and immediate family. Yeah, you know, and it's a big shock, you know, people coming from yeah. from, from a place like Iraq where there's always people coming in and out of the, you know, of the house, all kinds of individuals, and it's a very, very yeah. social environment. Yeah. And then you yeah. come here and, and, and you barely get a guest um yep. in a in a three month you have period. to make an appointment yeah <laughs> to, to have anybody around yeah exactly uh, so you know it's a big kind of sort of social shift and that mm. obviously causes a lot of psychological shifts as well you yeah. know so where it's always outside and then you sort of find out that actually there's an inside world in here that, yeah. that yeah. you know that i haven't actually looked into yeah. Hey, you're the psychiatrist. <laughs> no, you're quite right. No, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that those were all, that was another set of experiences that sensitized me that there are very different ways in people in which people live their lives, not just in terms of how they understand how the world works, but also there's kind of unwritten cultural social rules. Yeah. And you know culture is 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 that something that um is 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 inherent within us i mean not just on a on a social scale um but is it something that's passed down is it sort of within the genes is it within our dna structure so to speak um i guess um it depends what you mean by uh by culture but um if you take it to a broad, um, a broad definition, uh, which is, th it's a set of uh, beliefs and practices which a group of people have in common and which structures their understanding and the way they live. You can look at cultural groupings in all sorts of different ways. So a cultural 
grouping could be a f so all of us simultaneously will belong to several different cultural groups in which you can identify some differences to other ones so these these could be by family it could be by religion could be by uh, nationality could be by ethnicity um, some people even talk about like you know european culture so you've got a whole region of so it's just it's uh, it's just tendencies that different groups have in common and i would also add to that professional because our professions teach us a certain way of certain way of orientating ourselves in terms of how we what we believe and how we practice so we can sim we simultaneously belong to lots of different cultural groupings and one of the things i think to understand about culture in that way it's it's surrounding us and it and it structures the stories we tell about ourselves our life each other what's meaningful to us what 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 our values are but a culture in that sense is a is a living breathing dynamic thing it's never static and when you and and problems start to happen i think firstly when you don't acknowledge that we are cultural beings that we have uh, absorbed different ideas and and beliefs and that these have an influence on us but also when you do the opposite which is you start to think of culture as a concrete thing mm. that's when stereotyping starts to happen and you and you start to say oh african people are like this or iraqi people are like this of course some might be and uh, but um you know iraqi culture has been influenced by lots of different mm. things it's not a static um phenomena so culture is all around us it's a part of us we need to think about it um in terms of but for any individual they belong to lots of different cultural groupings which have had different influences on them and there's no shortcut to understanding what is meaningful to that individual otherwise you just fall into stereotypes yeah i mean you know culture um has always existed and will continue to exist you know it's a bit like i'm i'm thinking about the weather you know there's the weather here in the uk is is always changing you know so it yeah. never never stops changing and yet people kind of do what uh, they put in so much effort in order to Uh, kind of understand or predict or whatever about the um about the weather but it's just not possible you know sometimes you do get wet and sometimes you do get hot and sometimes you're not worrying or prepared for the for a particular kind of weather and mm. and you know culture in a way is you know we we makes we make all kinds of assumptions about culture yeah. and have you have you come across the um weather analogy with um emotions and mental health problems no no So the weather analogy um it's one of it's one of my favorite analogies I use it a lot in in clinical practice. Um the weather analogy goes something like this. Uh life on this planet wouldn't exist without the sun. So the sun is kind of the life force. It's the thing that is the provider of the vital 
ingredients to make life possible. And as, uh, as long as there is a sun around, there is life on earth. And um, whether we see the sun or feel the sun, it's, we, we know it's there. So the sun is a bit like the life force. Um, and then we have weather systems on the planet. Now, weather systems by their very nature are dynamic. They are constantly moving. They are constantly changing because there are so many different forces at play that are influencing what happens to weather systems. Um, so they're never static and um, uh, they, uh, but the one thing that you can predict about all weather is that it will be temporary. So the analogy goes that our emotional lives are very much like the weather systems. From the minute our heart starts beating till the minute we take our last breath, we have that life force, which is like the sun. Whether we feel it, whether we're aware of it, when we're asleep, it's still going on. So, you know, there is, there is a life force, however bad or good or whatever we feel, it's there, it's going on. And our emotions are influenced by so many different interacting things that our, emotionals, uh, our emotion states are always dynamic from memories, from associations, whether you're conscious of them to unconscious of them, to what happened a few minutes ago, to the weather itself, to, you know, maybe a phone call, you get a bad phone call or you get a good phone call, to what's happening at your work, to what's happening in your relationships. Our emotions are like the weather. They're influenced by many forces, forces that we often aren't aware of, often we can't control them directly, and they manifest uh, uh, in us in that dynamic way. And just like the weather, all emotion states are temporary. Mm. You can't expect to be happy the whole time, mm. just like you can't expect sunny days to continue forever. But by the same token, even the most miserable time is not going to last forever. It, it, if you are open to it, it will change. If you are aware of it, it will change. Um, and so the analogy in kind of the weather, if you want to take the analogy even further, when you get caught up with an idea that your emotion state is never going to change and it's going to be there forever, and there's, um, uh, it's a bit like you're hit by a terrible storm. And um, that storm goes on and comes back, you know, in a few days time and it's stormy again. And it was so unpleasant that you no longer trust it when the sun starts coming out. Mm. Because you're, you're aware that sooner or later there's going to be another storm. So you can't even enjoy the fact that it's a nice sunny day. And sometimes when we get bogged down in those um, awful 
states of mental distress, it's a bit like coming to um, to believe that the sun can't shine again. It's a bit like forgetting the temporary nature of all emotional states. That's the uh, weather analogy. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one can think about putting him or herself close to the equator or if you're in the middle of um, the Antarctic area and, and you don't like the cold, you can move yourself towards hotter climates. So there is a, um, a form of agency as well that, that one has. You know, we may not predict or control the weather, but we can put ourselves in, in situations where it may be a bit easier for us to to feel better. Um, uh, you know, this thing about control is is um, I think is important anyway. Um, the... I've actually changed my mind about agency and control. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I, I've kind of become aware of and... and um, could, could you give us like the backstory of, yeah. of, of, of sort of what you mean by that, you know, that, that you change your mind around agency and control? So where were you before yeah, I, and, and where are you now? Yeah, so, I mean, this was part of the reason I, I put uh, a lot... My, my most recent book, Insane mm. Medicine, mm. Is, is kind of the point that I've reached to now where um, even though I have been skeptical of most therapeutic systems as a totality, um, but I have been using a lot from different therapeutic systems and I've generally been drawn towards um, psychodynamic and systemic um, theoretical constructs. Um, but I, um, for a long time, believed that the thing that was most um, uh, important in uh, producing therapeutic change was some degree of um, helping people to develop uh, agency and a belief that they can change things. Um, and one of the things I became aware of, because I, I, I'd uh, long become aware of the evidence on outcomes, but if you look at population level, there seems to be a correlation, and of course I know correlation is not um, causation, but there seems to be a correlation between the amount of um, therapeutic input and also the amount of psychotropic drug prescribing and poorer outcomes. That the, it seems that the more we develop mental health services, it seems to be the, the, the more we've got people who are on psychiatric drugs, who are in um, various types of therapy, who are claiming disability living allowance for having a psychiatric problem. We've got a, a, a increase in the number of people who are on long-term treatments and classified as having you know, chronic mental illness. Um, and 
anybody who's worked in the mental health service for long enough can see that, can see that we, we are, seem to be good at creating long-term patients, particularly if we start adding medication into the mix. Not so much if, if we can resist going down the route of, of medication. Um, and and um, one of the things that started to occur to me clinically with the, uh, as a consultant, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I'm a consultant and we have a catchment area. And so as a consultant to the team that I work with, I naturally tend to see the people who are um, stuck and who've maybe had a fair amount of input from the service over a period of time. And um, uh, as, as the main doctor, most of the, those, um, well, it's a mixture. Some come to me having got prescriptions from the GP or from another area or a private doctor, but a, a good proportion come to me from other members of the team. And that it's, it's not that they've been exposed to um, psychiatric medication and all that brings, but what they have been exposed to is a story um, and this is through the well-meaning and well-intentioned and often very skillful therapeutic input from psychologists or therapists. But the story they come with me uh, to me with is that they have a mental disorder or they have trauma or that they have um, the, the one that's... Um, that has become very popular these days is emotional dysregulation. Did you come across that one? Mm -hmm. They're emotionally dysregulated. And they've had therapeutic input. And sometimes they've seen two or three different people. And uh, so by the time they come to see me, they come with a story that there's something really wrong with them because they've been trying these different things. They've had like cognitive behavioral therapy or they've, their parents have been, you know, being given advice. Um, so by the time they come to me, they have a story that there's something really wrong with them. And that um, uh, somehow they're a failure in being able to change the situation. Um, and so usually they're coming thinking that I might prescribe medication because so that to me is often a sign that they've got to a point where um, where uh, they are feeling desperate to have a more magical solution because they have a sense that they cannot have agency over this problem. And it was a series of things that happened that started me to think a little bit differently about this group of stuck people. Um, they included things like um, the uh, ways of working with people who hear voices. So the hearing voices movement have tried to depathologize the experience of hearing voices. So whereas a more um, medical or symptom-based therapeutic approach involves the idea that the hearing voices is a sign of 
a disorder, disease, you know, something wrong with you, and that the approach of a treatment is to try and suppress these. Um, the Hearing Voices movement said, no, these are legitimate experiences. They likely come out of your um, unconscious. They're to do with um, experiences you've had, and it's a bit like different parts of you uh, instead of recognizing this as internal thinking, um, it's coming out as a perceptual experience. So these are these are kind of, and so a lot of the therapeutic work doesn't involve trying to suppress the voices. It doesn't even involve trying to control the voices. It involves changing your relationship to the voices, so that you you don't see them as something that to be scared of. You see them as something to be understood. What is it that they're trying to tell you? What parts of you are being represented? Where did they come from? How might you have a conversation with your voices? And and um, so there were a number of things that that um, one of the other things that actually sensitized me to this comes from our cultural background, which is the idea of fate. Abid Allah. Mm. It's, it's it's in Allah's hands. That it's written. Life, it's written in. in we have you a know, predestiny. Yeah, and that we might not understand what that predestiny is, but it's not for us to understand. But we can know that there is a meaning, even if we don't know what that meaning is, to what happens to us. Now, I'm not particularly religious, but when you grow up with certain ideas, you don't realize how much they have become a part of you until you have experiences that bring them to the fore. So one of the things that has that I've found has happened in difficult times of my life is I've had this implicit, almost intuitive feeling that it this is I, I have to trust that this is what needs to happen. I just have to put put my um, trust that fate will find a way through this. And then another experience that also helped me shift was to do with um, insomnia. Mm. So insomnia is a common thing and I've, um, for various reasons, I've had um, periods where I've had some pretty bad insomnia. And um, uh, what I realized is that um, once you've, uh, usually insomnia comes because you've got things on your mind, things you, you, you can't, you know, you, your mind just can't stop thinking. Um, but at some point, once you've uh, experienced insomnia enough, the experience of insomnia becomes the thing that keeps you awake. So you start worrying about how much sleep you're going to get in, in any one night and uh, you know you've got to go to work tomorrow how how are you going to be able to function and you start clock watching oh my god it's three o'clock in the morning I'm going to have another night like last night etc um, etc et yeah the problem becomes a problem the problem becomes a problem and it gets worse because um, then I started to try and do something about it I downloaded some apps and for a couple of nights they worked great. I thought, okay, I've cracked it. 
And then, of course, after a few nights, it stopped working. So now I think, oh, you know, what do I try next? I tried um, a, a different time of going to sleep, different routines. Um, so um, the size of the problem starts getting bigger and bigger. The more I try and take control of it, if you see what I mean, and then one day there was just a passing comment from from my wife, and uh, it's one of those funny funny moments where something clicks, and her comment was, "You you don't have to make a, a lot of fuss about your sleep." That was her comment, <laughs> so, um, and I and I still have it in my mind. I remember going into the bathroom, um, and that was, and I thought to myself. She's absolutely right. Why am I making such a fuss about something that is is so ordinary that most people experience? And when insomnia sort of slipped away from being a problem that I had to solve and back into the brackets of an ordinary experience, an experience that is just going to happen, in an odd way, it released me from feeling I needed to take control of it. Something that's understandable. It's, it's, it, it puts it back into the bracket of ordinary and or understandable. Mm -hmm. Rather than a problem that needs a solution, mm -hmm. if you follow me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that those kind of those sorts of ideas, the idea of changing your relationship to the problem that I got from the voice hearing movement, the idea of fate, that things happen and sometimes they happen. We don't know why they happen, but we have to accept that this is. And the uh, idea of if I define something as a problem that needs a solution and that solution refuses to show itself. Yeah this becomes the reinforcing this is where the problem becomes a problem and you know this goes against you know this this goes against particularly when when we're trained as as medics where everything yeah. has to have an answer everything has to have a reason yeah. and everything yeah. has to have a, a solution and also a very time framed solution as well uh, at the same exactly. time exactly exactly time 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 restricted yeah. or uh, there's always that that sort of big stamp of of within a week within what are you 10 going days to do? yes yeah <laughs> impression plan and then it has to be no. and 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 actually you know our our um, bureaucracies are organized that way mm. so we're meant to have a particular format in which we are meant to carry out our assessments and at the end there has to be differential diagnosis and your action plan and it bullets on what, what you're. And so coming back to that group of patients who I see as the consultant, those group who seem to be, have had lots of therapy and now come with a story that there's something deeply wrong with me. And now they're looking to medication, which is a very disempowering way of um helping someone because it gives them the message that they that they they don't have the knowledge skills or ideas to be able to find a way out and so in it sensitizes them it hypnotizes them 
to an idea that uh, if they get better this time with that, their future episodes of distress are not going to improve without them coming back to this. So, um, so what I started finding out is that, um, so this is now anecdotal rather than research, and, but it does fit in with a lot of what the research says. Um, the, the way I now work with that stuck group of patients as far as possible is to try and help them change their relationship to their, to their distress. This is particularly common with groups who are experiencing depression and anxiety. Try and bring it back into the sphere of this is ordinary and or understandable, even if we don't know the reasons why. These are common experiences. These are human experiences. And um, suggest to them, so this is where the kind of um, ideas from hypnosis come in, suggest to them that now that we're having these conversations, um, that their unconscious will be sensitized to reformulating and reframing their experiences away from an experience that needs a solution towards what they're doing already, which is they're learning to live their lives um, despite knowing that they're going to have more bad days and making the suggestion to them that their unconscious will work on this and they uh, the thing I can't predict is how when and in what form the penny will start to drop and when it does start to drop what they will notice is not the absence of the distress but actually that they are more able to in, enjoy or even just notice the better times. Because what happens when you're very preoccupied with an idea of distress needing to be got rid of is even when you have a nice time, like go out with your friends and have a laugh, at the back of your mind, it feels like there's always a shadow there waiting because you can't trust that this is going to go on. You can't trust that this is something that you can enjoy because you know sooner or later you're just going to crash. So those that's that kind of... So in a way, I'm saying you don't need to worry about agency. You don't need to worry about control. We need a better story to help you through this. And, and you know, the big barrier is that they are bombarded by this sort of, society story that yeah you know you've got to you've got to be thriving and 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 happy and and uh um you know constantly striving for success yeah and, and and always doing something that 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 brings you closer to um you know i don't know nirvana well whatever the ultimate <laughs> destination so, is there's, um um, there's a sociologist, and I've forgotten her name, Wolfenstein or something, um, who wrote back in the 60s that we were developing a fun morality. 
mm. uh, in the West, in which um, if you were not having fun, it was a sign that there was something wrong with you. And I and I think you know um, you were showing your phone earlier. I think you know the the um, availability of social media yeah. really amplifies that sense of being on show all the time, yeah. and um, that insecurity about whether you are. Um, uh, achieving and functioning in the way that you should be and 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 what gets mixed in with that story that you should be having fun and if you're not there's something wrong with you as well as you should be achieving and all of these sorts of all of these sorts of things which make up what i call the compare and compete culture is um, this widespread anti-stigma mental health education campaigns that are going on, which is sensitizing people, particularly young people, to the idea that mental health pandemics and crises are all around us and that you need to be able to identify that and intervene early. I mean, are they setting us up for for failure or are they setting us up for uh, mental distress or increased mental distress by doing these things well, i think that makes things worse mm. because i i think what it, what what it does is it causes us to be suspicious of our emotional states particularly our intense emotional states so we start to monitor ourselves for signs and we start to monitor our children and our loved ones for signs that they are experiencing a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and when we become suspicious of our um, emotional lives in that way, we become very um, open, vulnerable, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Hypervigilant. We become hypervigilant, yeah, um, to to this idea that there's something wrong and to wanting the various products that are now on offer very widely in our culture, which are being sold with the idea, what I call the McDonaldization of mental health, yeah. with the idea that these products will help you um, deal with these internal problems uh, that you have. I mean, most notably, the pharmaceutical industry have been great because if you can medicalize children's behavior and feelings of depression, anxiety and self-doubt in adults, these are huge markets. Yeah, yeah. But it's also helped the expansion or what I call the industrialization of therapy. So forms of therapy that are being sold as these kind of, you know, 10 sessions of CBT, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that are kind of branded therapies. Yeah. But also then courses and self-help books and institutions, you know, that there's a whole industry that's developed yeah. Yeah. Uh, around this idea. And it's a, it's, a, it's a big industry. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, then you can 
put in procedures and protocols and 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 sort of time frames in order to put them through put the cattle through the system so to speak and then give them a nice badge at the end once they've done everything and then they're left just exactly. as probably even more empty and you know they've banned heroin and coke and sort of all these things but but really what what they should ban is or or, <laughs> or at least put put a levy on these um yeah. you know dopamine and, and serotonin inducing devices because yeah. you know if you want to hit you just go on your favorite app and and, and you know what the conversation we started with about having conversations about learning from people around you yeah the thing about this this way of understanding and interpreting mental distress is it's sending us into an idea that it's something that happens between the ears and so the solutions is doing something in here whereas um uh in an odd way it reinforces the loneliness that this culture i think promotes with this compare and compete philosophy so um it's not that people aren't getting distressed but in some way I mean, the what's happening with covid is a is a really good illustration of that we've had a lot of publicity on this idea that we're being hit by a mental health pandemic yeah. and most people understand that the mental the mental health pandemic is related to the disruption of our social lives of our financial security so it's a disruption of our social and material well-being but then the corresponding message that goes along and and you know my royal college the royal college of psychiatrists are as guilty as anywhere else of of propagating this is therefore we need to boost up funding for mental health services people need more access to treatments but that's and understandable on both sides you know understandable yeah. why people have uh, mental distress the same token there are some very easy simple me- things that you can do to to counteract it which is much cheaper than increasing funding to you know certain royal yeah. colleges yes. but the same token it's understandable from the royal college to be able to you know talk about these messages as well because it is very lucrative as you said well exactly it becomes it, it it becomes an illustration of of how both sides of those um um Spectrum. stories yeah. yeah both sides of those stories are still perpetuating uh, an idea that um sees um sees mental health as something that happens within people rather than in the social material disruptions and i'm not saying that these are these should be viewed as um binary opposites yeah but it is but the things that has got to make the most difference to this type of what we're calling a, a mental health pandemic is going to be the amount we can connect with each other yeah. Yeah. the uh, availability of job security yeah um you know uh, the the ability to see your friends again to to do things together these uh, to be connected with your family and so on these are the things that are going to make the biggest difference to that sort of absolutely i mean i mean the thing that really pissed me off and sort of excuse my language got on my tits 
uh, when when the pandemic started was using the word social distancing. And I said, don't use the word social distancing. Yeah. It's physical distancing. Exactly. Yeah. It's yes, physical that's, distancing that's really good point. because that's psychologically, good point. when you say so, let's socially distance, you know, look, I'm Iraqi and we love uh, uh, conspiracy theories. You know, you, you know, the first thing we do when 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 we're young uh, children is that we talk about how bad the government is. I'm not, I was probably about six or seven at the time. All we talk about is how corrupt the government is, how they're stealing all the money and there's nothing left for the Iraqi people. So. You know, we we kind of swim in conspiracy theories uh, from our mother's breast, probably. You know, it's a very Freudian concept. But I mean, <laughs> but, you know, why do you engineer a word which will cause some psychological distress? Mm. Now, this is a physical phenomenon. Mm. Uh, you know, the virus is a physical phenomenon apparently, which causes physical symptoms. So let's keep it physical rather than delving into the realms of the psychological, which is, as you said, very powerful. You know, the realms of the metaphysical is because you're talking about ideas and stories and ideologies. And I think once we get into the kind of extremes of ideology, that's when people die. Um, You know, in our country, it's because of ideology that people blow each other up. And it's sort of very, very powerful. And I think, you know, if we keep it physical, then things become, you know, easier to understand. But anyway, that's my gripe about. um, And now they're talking about instead of physical PPE, they're talking about psychological PPE, you know. And, you know, that's another kind of interesting story that, you know, doctors are sort of really burnt out and, and can't cope. And I mean, it's not a great story. Okay. It happens to a certain number of individuals, but what you're saying is that actually doctors don't know how to take care of themselves, and they need mm. someone to hold their hand psychologically. Um, mm. I think to myself, well, if I've had three days worth of work, I constantly work for three days. I'm going to take a break. Mm. <laughs> I'm a human being. I know when I'm about to crack. Yeah, I, and and. I think we've um, we've we've kind of moved a cultural. If you wanted to get into a broader discussion of the politics of of all of this, one of the things that I think has happened is that uh, as the um, uh, as we prostrated ourselves at the feet of market forces and um, threw our culture open to the idea that we should. Um, allow the markets to solve our problems we shifted our culture away from um again these are not dichotomies these are tendencies away from an an idea that um change comes about through solidarity towards the idea that we are each individuals who are have to look out for our own interests and people around us are potential rivals to us for whatever resources there is. So this kind of individualizations. So at some level, the whole culture of psychiatric um, disorders, of um, psychotropic medication, and even of psychotherapy or industrialized psychotherapy, 
is replacing um, solidarity, unions, organized social um, uh, activism with the idea that when things go wrong, it's because there's something wrong in you and that it's you who need to sort out your own head. Yeah, yeah. So these days I kind of, um, I mean, I've come to the conclusion that what we call psychiatric diagnoses are actually not diagnoses because um, in, in medicine, uh, in, in nature, we classify everything and different systems of classification um, have different principles. The diagnostic system of classification is classification by cause, or at least proximal cause. I mean, we don't fully understand causes in those things. So we understand that when we go to a doctor with, a, with some chest pain, they're trying to understand what the cause of that chest pain, and we might feel re- relieved when he says, oh, the cause of it is an acid reflux, not a heart attack, you know? So we understand that what doctors do when they're doing diagnosis is they're trying to understand the cause and that their treatments will be related to the cause. Now, in psychiatry, we, have, we know nothing about the cause, literally nothing about the cause. So our what we call diagnoses are not cause-based, they're descriptive. So when we say that um, you know you have depression, we're just describing a set of experiences that the person is talking about. And saying that my low mood is caused by depression is a bit like saying the pain in my head is caused by a headache. You know, a, a description can't cause itself. Um, and and In actual fact, what I think has happened is that psychiatric diagnoses, the reason they've taken off in such big numbers is because they're actually more like brands. They're more like market brands. And some brands have a lot of potential to make a lot of money from. And this kind of fits in to another aspect of the marketization of everything is that um, our our individual experiences are now potentials to make various types of profit for all sorts of all sorts of um, um, industries. And what's been the reaction to you saying these things and writing about these things in your books? Because because you've written so many books on this um, on this topic that 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 psychiatric diagnoses are really shorthand descriptors of, of, of experiences? Um, that sort of thing tends to get kind of polarized um, responses. So there is there are a, a good many critical um, psychiatrists and critical psychologists and um, service user movements there's you know there, there is quite a volume of people who very much understand what it is that uh, that I'm saying um, and I think then there are the mainstream institutions that are threatened by this idea um, But I think the best way to deal with that for those institutions in power is to sort of nod politely, but ignore it. And Mm -hmm. so 
most of most of my experience hasn't been a kind of attempt to rubbish it. It's been more just we don't talk about these things sort right. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you see real change within in institutions happening? Do you, do you think that's going to happen in the future or, or are we going to experience, you know, more um, industrialization of, of uh, mental distress and uh, um, experiences? You know, that's one of those questions that's uh, really hard to predict, Time will tell. Really hard to answer um, because, you know, there does seem to be a lot of people who work in that field who understand this and uh, can see that the systems we've created are, um, however well-intentioned they are, may well be doing more harm than helping the populations that we're, we're um, trying to serve. Um, but then up against them are the powerful institutions the places that have money and, and government ear. So, um, uh, is there a younger generation? Is a younger generation? I think, who, I think there might be a younger stuff. generation who are who are more um, uh, because we've we've had promises of breakthroughs for several decades now, and and the cupboard is as empty as it was. Um, I remember um, uh, a fellow trainee. Um, when I was a, a trainee in psychiatry and, and um, coming towards the end of my training and I was beginning to be sceptical about where we were going. And um, we had a bet together um, uh, that uh, she said within 25 years, we'll have a test, a physical test for schizophrenia. And I said, I don't think so. Uh, so we shook hands on that. Unfortunately, I've lost contact with her because she owes me <laughs> tenor. <laughs> but um, uh, what, so, so, you know, we, at the time I was training, it was like decade of the brain and, and neuroscience was really taking off. And, and, and then the human genome was um, transcribed. And so all this molecular genetic research, a huge volume of it has, and it's all drawing a blank. So, you know, people are starting to ask some big questions about why are we not getting anywhere with this. And the thing that keeps me hopeful is that you don't know when or how the critical mass will be achieved. Mm. You know, um, the, the revolution in Cuba started with what a few people um, going over on a boat to Cuba. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the other, on the other hand, did anybody see the fall of the whole of the Eastern Bloc and how quickly it happened? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, even MI5 didn't realize that the that the Eastern Bloc was was crumbling and about to disappear. Yeah. So we don't know when that critical mass will happen and, yeah. and how it will emerge. I mean, it's the same with um, COVID nineteen. Who would have thought that COVID nineteen would have, you know, decimated? Uh, so many uh, countries yeah, and has. economies and 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 people, um, and the way it's sort of accelerated into something that's become a meme now. You know, it's become part Absolutely. of yeah, you know, human history. Um, and you know, there's. I mean, I think maybe that the East might have a a say in this, I think and that might. you know, in that 
you know, Western psychological uh, um, history and um, psychiatry history is not really making inroads into the, you know, psychological status in, in terms of, you know, relieving psychological distress. And the East are sort of, you know, with all the wars and with all the famines and with all the difficulties of sort of living in modern life, um, so maybe there's um, there's a role for us to sort of accept that maybe it's not working here. Mm. You know, because my family just recently came back from uh, from Iraq and they had a fun time, and then they came here, and it's like empty house, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, smiling less and 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 uh, you see, well, I mean, it's an interesting point. It's one of the things that I've wondered about. In in many ways, psychologically, Western Enlightenment culture is a very young culture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you wanted to be a bit interpretive um, uh, about it, it's 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 uh, quite an infantile culture. Yeah. So it's it's based on an idea that we can um, we can have whatever we want, um, and that you know that that uh, us as individuals are somehow better than others. So it has a lot of those kind of ingrained ideas of power and superiority, quite infantile ideas of omnipotence. Yeah. Eastern cultures have a much longer history of engaging with the nature of human experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's a kind of a, a bit of a simplified um, argument, yeah. but you do get the sense that Eastern cultures um, maybe have a little bit more wisdom to offer in terms of how to deal with the um, the nature of human experience, because it, in a lot of Eastern cultures, the idea of suffering is a prerequisite to personal growth. Mm. Whereas for us, we've created a, 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 a way of thinking about uh, suffering where it is something that we should be able to eliminate, we should be able to get rid of. So we see suffering as meaningless torture rather than something that might have meaning, something that might contribute to growth, to a deeper understanding. Yeah, and you know, th- this is where media and, and art and, and film um, and literature can play a big role, you know, the importance mm. of suffering. The other thing that came to mind is that Western philosophy is, is uh, younger. It's more logically sophisticated, um, but it sort of stayed at the logical level, you know, at the kind of um, um, rational level and is less applicable into life, whereas the Eastern is more about application into, in, in, into life. And I think if, 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 if we can get young philosophers to actually translate Western philosophy into actual uh, uh, application in life, you know, that would be an interesting field for, for them to, to get involved in, in psychological therapies and psychiatry and sort of try and marry the, the two together. I think that would be an interesting development. That would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, ra- rather than making it just an exclusive, mm. 
you know, kind of a medical modality or specialty, actually, to bring in Western modern philosophy and, you know, do it the Eastern way, which is, you know, how, how, mm. how can we mix philosophy and religion and, and modern living? Because, you, know, uh, you know, in Iraq, people died left, right and centre, people are getting blown up and, and sort of what have you, and very, very distressing situations. Um, you know, recently lost a brother-in-law, recently lost an uncle, really young people in very distressing situations. And yet philosophically, you know, or ideologically or theologically or metaphysically, they've found a way of getting through these really major distresses. And here, I mean, you know, I'm not knocking anyone here, but, you know, here you become redundant and, and, and you know, it's sort of the end of the world. So, you know, just, just an interesting observation. The thing that I'm kind of a bit not happy about is that people are, are trying to use Western ways western psychological therapies and applying it to the east i know i know and i'm thinking yeah. no what the fuck are you doing yeah. are you you're gonna mess these people up even more yeah, i don't know i mean that's my view i may be totally wrong no, you're, you're absolutely right this the global mental health movement is uh, very typical of a colonial style operation with the idea that we understand and know what the best way uh, to approach these uh, problems of human distress and mental suffering. And that it's our job to go and help all these poor people around the world be educated about properly understanding what a mental illness is, what a mental disorder is, and get treatments out there. And, and a lot of that involves, of course, an expanding role for the drug industry. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, a, um, it's something that really should be resisted. It's a, it's a legacy of, of colonialism. It's the same sort of um, mentality that led the missionaries to go out and civilize the rest of the world to understand that, you know, um, the... Uh, Catholic or Protestant God was the only God and, and uh, um, they should get rid of their superstitions. That's a worry. I mean, that's something that, that, that I'm a bit, I mean, let's say I'm, I've got a certain level of education. I mean, is it for us to tell them or is it for them to, to, to resist? I, I guess it's both. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they haven't worked. Well, it hasn't worked here. It's getting worse here. And, yeah, and so why on earth would we want to do that? Unless, of course, there's money to be made. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're a bit lucky that, that we've come from both, you know, we've, we've got feet in both um, lands and sort of, you know, both hemispheres and we can sort of see both sides. And um, we've had to adapt in both situations. I mean, when I went back to Iraq, um in 2006 which was a bit weird because an easterner what goes to the west learns the west go back goes back to the east and, and yet when i was in the east i wasn't considered an eastern i was considered a westerner yes of yeah. Course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so it was this sort of constant it was weird it was a weird experience and yet i was still comfortable because i knew where i was within myself because i was but then i lost my my inside compass and then the whole story went, you yeah. know, the compass went round and round and round again. And then I've, I've, I've had to find myself again. And it's, it's quite reassuring because it tells us that, 
we're in you know as long as we're breathing we have to constantly find ourselves mm. on a but it sounds like that that in some way maybe having to do that was quite instructive and and meaningful and and you learned something from that oh yeah 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 mm. you know having these conversations are really interesting and and you know yeah. sometimes we don't take something away from it immediately but you know having looked back i mean i listened to sort of previous podcasts and i think oh my god you know this really makes sense because i experienced this yesterday uh, i experienced this state of anger or this you know state of uh, totally losing myself uh and and, and being totally antisocial um and then listening to a particular podcast about uh, acceptance made, made so much such a big difference um in the way i can adapt and um learn from these situations so um i mean we can talk a, a lot longer but you know I, I i i like to keep things to an hour and we've just yeah um gone over an hour um you know if 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 you were to look back to what you've experienced uh, so far and you know obviously you're only 35 um you know what would what would your advice be to that um young man who who sort of came here to to live with his grandmother at the age of 14 you know what would you um uh what kind of words of wisdom would you tell him if he was to listen to you and you were to to help him what a nice question um uh i think i think it would be a little along the lines of what we were talking about with the weather metaphor. Yeah. That um, uh, to be patient, um, to um, uh, to know that there is a way um, through this, and just to get on with your life. Yeah. Just see what happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Life's bigger than just these kind yeah. of, um, you know, what I use, you know, mind fucks, basically. You know, so, I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's more to life yeah. than these mind fucks. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keep looking outward. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'll find a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say that. You know, most. You know, this is one of the other things that I think has happened, that the more we've popularized this idea of mass mental health problems and we've become um, afraid of our emotions and sensitized to the idea that they, they are dangerous, is that we've opened up to the um, notion that human beings are fundamentally vulnerable. Whereas... Um, Actually, my experience is that most people are actually quite resilient. You yeah, do yeah, yeah. find ways through a lot of difficult situations. Well, like weeds, mate. Well, like weeds. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> we, keep, we keep growing. Yeah. yeah. We keep growing. So I think that's one of the things that I would advise my yeah. younger self to keep in mind. You're actually quite resilient. Yeah. You can get through this. You're an Iraqi weed, and Iraqi weeds are very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Of course, weed means it meant something different when I was younger. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah they kept you going. You used to be called you used to be called a weed if you were perceived to be weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good old days. The good old days when it was rough. It was exactly, it was rough yeah. and tumble. <laughs> thank you, Sammy. It's been a great pleasure. Lovely thank you so much. You. Yeah, thank you for inviting me.